There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. The Bookshelf, what you should be reading. Founder and Managing Director of Gambit Communications Agency and avid non-fiction reader Jamal Al-Mawad joins us today to talk about War Doctor, Surgery on the Frontline by David Knott. One of the books we've spoken about on the show before, Alex and Jamal, is mm. This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but in summary, it's this hugely successful, moving, hilarious memoir. It's about a junior doctor's experiences on the front line of the UK's National Health Service. On the front of War Doctor by David Knott, you may have noticed that there is a quote from Adam Kay that says, brave, compassionate and inspiring. It left me in floods of tears. And this is where I want to start because I read that and I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. (laughs) And then I wasn't. (laughs) And I just wondered if anybody else had a similar teary reaction to this book. Good morning, Annabelle. How are you? And good morning to all the listeners. Um, I absolutely had that reaction. I think that uh, when you, what's really great about David not talking about these experiences is that there is a thread of humanity in him that's very not, um, it's not arrogant, it's not self-serving. And you find that when he's describing um, some of the stuff that he's been through, he's also very, feels very guilty about the people he couldn't save. Um, And I think that comes through the pages and you feel the way that he feels about wanting to save as many people as he can. And I think it's best is best um, demonstrated by when he says that whenever he would go back to London from these terrible war zones, he would feel guilty while he was sitting in his NHS office thinking that here he can do surgery and save one person a week. Whereas in the war zones he was in, he was literally doing sometimes 20 surgeries a day. Yeah, the, it, when you look at the numbers and the sheer volume of cases that he had to deal with, and, and it's presented to you in the book in a very straightforward, matter-of-fact manner. And it's, it's almost clinical in a way, in the way he's describing each of the operations and all of the horrible things that he's seen. And my reading experience of this book was almost like his experiences of dealing with the trauma. So he goes through all of these operations, he confronts all of these incidents, and then he'll find maybe a week later that he's crying for four hours straight because everything Mm. has actually caught up to him. And it was a similar experience reading this book in that I would be reading it, I'd be taking it in, I'd be able to put it down, and then I would pick it back up again, and there would be a paragraph that just tipped me completely over the edge. So he starts off in Sarajevo. That's where it all begins, 1993. I think that is the first war zone that he goes to. And it's it's a bit of a shock for him, isn't it? It's a big shock for him. And I think that what's great about the the story, like you said, the word clinical is a fantastic word to use to describe his prose and his writing style because he describes them trying not to show emotion, but the emotion comes through. Um, And it's it's a great read because there are fantastic stories in it. Um, A, um, but B, you learn a lot about how people deal with this trauma uh, in a in a functional way in the in the trauma ward. So he talks a lot about surgery and procedures and so on. Um, and he starts off with Sarajevo. So he went for the first time with Medicine Sans Frontier, um, Doctors Without Borders. Um, and he, when he was in Sarajevo, it was obviously a shock for him, a, a, a rude awakening in terms of what's actually going on in these uh, war zones. And he says one story, which is one of the ones that just uh, um, gets him kind of uh, moving to, to, to keep doing this. And I think, I think you can also talk about it. 
Yeah, we actually have him talking about one, the scary incident that happened in Sarajevo in 1993. I was on my own then in the city state hospital in the city centre, which was called the Swiss Cheese Hospital, because it had so many holes in it. It was hit all the time, and it was the first time I ever felt that, you know, hang on a minute, you know, international humanitarian law should be here to help me. I'm a doctor, you know, why are you shooting hospitals? We didn't know much about trauma at the time. Patients would come in and unfortunately they would die on the operating table because it was so cold. One particular time I remember I was operating on a young lad who had had a fragment injury to his major blood vessel in his abdomen and a rocket had hit the hospital and the whole place shook and I was operating with an anaesthetist and a scrub nurse and somebody else and suddenly the lights went off and it was completely pitch black. And so five minutes passed, ten minutes passed, nobody came. I don't know, 15 minutes later, the lights went on and I was the only person in the operating theatre. Everybody had left because they realised that if the hospital had been completely destroyed, we were all going to die. But nobody told me. And it was a big, major moment for me, realising that, you know, you probably have to look after yourself sometimes rather than the patient. David, not there. You probably have to look after yourself sometimes rather than the patient. That is an excerpt from a wonderful uh, interview that he did on BBC Radio. I remember speaking to you before about some of your the, the moments that stood out for you the most from this book, and I think that was one of them. And as you're reading, it is shocking, isn't it? I mean, he's he's left in... Imagine that, imagine that being left in the dark and then waking up and finding that someone had died in front of you and that you were the only person left and, and everyone had just left you in the operating theatre. It's very shocking and he describes it much more viscerally in the yes, book. Yes, absolutely. Um, by, by saying he was actually operating on an artery at that moment yeah. when the lights went off and he couldn't see. And so when he woke up, um, the boy had bled to death, but he said I was like I was standing in an abattoir. Mm. You know, so you, you can imagine the horror of somebody who lives a day-to-day life the way do, we do, going to work, you know, living in London and so on and then suddenly being in that situation. Um, but I think the 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 thing that makes him different is he admits early on in the book that he's an adrenaline junkie and it's one of the reasons he's a he's a pilot he's a commercial pilot as well in his spare time and that thread of 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 wanting to to fly and to face danger and so on is what keeps him going back in addition to the the wanting to save people it's really interesting it's almost like he likes to operate under pressure it's he almost does. like he enjoys that pressure of can I perform with bombs going off or can I perform in this situation, which is really, really interesting. And I find the way that he describes things at times disturbingly matter-of-fact. That's the thing because I guess he's seen so much in his life, he's not shocked anymore, and he'll write a paragraph or a page and, you, and the way he describes it is so everyday, but what he's descri- talking about is so horrific and unbelievable, it really just shocks you. I also think that maybe it's his way of doing justice to everything that he's seen in that it does not need embellishment. It is what mm, it is. Absolutely. And it is horrific in, with that fact. Uh, he, he speaks about this idea that he's an adrenaline junkie and almost the guilt that he feels in, in almost enjoying what he does in spite of all the horrors around him. Um, and he says the BBC journalist Jeremy Bowen, who is in and out of Sarajevo at this time as well, captured this feeling very neatly in his memoir War Stories. He says, During the war, the alternative normal life seemed very tame. I had no desire whatsoever to be someone safe in London, commuting to work, knowing what I would be doing, and when months in advance. In Sarajevo, I felt free, that part of it. The feeling of living on the edge was fun. The only constraint was making a mistake that could get you wounded or killed, which was straightforward in a way that I liked. And yeah. and he talks about this again and again throughout the book. Um, 
so Sarajevo is where it begins, and he Syria is a is a big part of the book as well. Um, and you you speak there about the fact that he has this kind of this inability to cope with life at home, and when it's quite moving when he talks about the fact that he doesn't actually have anybody. So throughout this narrative of him experiencing all these things in various war zones, there's also the lack of a family life coming through as well, isn't there? Yes, and 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 it's one of the things that he he believes serves him well uh, because he's always ready to go there and he knows that he's potentially going to die in the war zone and he's okay with that. Um, and it's uh, um, so his both of his parents um, pass away obviously during the proceedings of the book. Um, he feels tremendous guilt about his mother passing away because um, she has an infection that he feels he should have noticed mm. before while she was getting sick. And by the time um, it was realized, it was too late. And he belie- he feels he could have saved her. And it goes back to the theme again with him of always feeling that he he should have or could have saved more people. And just the, what I find fascinating about him is the the idea that being... Be, you know, there's there's a famous saying that, uh, um, you know, f- for, for evil to flourish, it only takes for good people to do nothing. And he almost feels that for him to be at home doing nothing, that in itself is a sin. Um, and it's, uh, it's a fantastic way to look at life. And it shows the measure of the man that he is, um, found, which comes through. I found this section really, really interesting because I watched recently A Private War, which is the story of Marie Colvin who's a journalist who actually died in Syria around about the same time. And she had the same thing where she, you know, she was sitting in her office or in London covering things and she just kept going back to the war zones, even though she lost an eye, even though she was going to a very difficult situation. And in the end, she died in Syria because, you know, everybody else left and told her, you have to go, you have to go. And she stayed and she died. So I found that really interesting to read this kind of similar story about someone who was just addicted to helping or just or couldn't leave when people needed him. Yeah, and I think one other thing that I, I really liked about him that comes through that he never says um, uh, outright is that you find with every situation, he's always trying to avoid an amputation. Whereas other doctors are more than ready to do the amputation and save the life, he's always thinking about the quality of life after that. And there are so many instances in the book where he talks about procedures that he did that were very complicated, but that saved a limb for somebody and allowed them to then go on and have a, a much more better quality of life. And it's not just his determination in the operating theatre either. It's with trying to, if if he's unable to treat, say, a small child who has been wounded in that situation, he does everything he humanly can to get them out of the country to somewhere that can help. And that often involves getting impossible passports and visas and papers. And he does not give up. And the sheer doggedness that he pursues helping people with is is inspirational and the book is just filled with examples of that not only did i put this book down with the utmost respect for dr Knott, but i also put it down with even more for queen elizabeth because there is a section in the book that i think has become my favorite where do you remember this where he's invited to have dinner with the queen and he sits through this dinner and he's he's got back i think from another um another trip to Syria and he just he cannot cope with being back in London we've already spoken about this his inability to kind of fit in when he comes back from these war zones and he's basically got anxiety and post-traumatic stress and he's not coping with it at all he doesn't want to be there and the queen has a rule where she doesn't speak to the person on her left until kind of the second half of the dinner and when she actually starts to talk to him she says um 
what was that like? She says, where have you come from? And he says, I've come from, from Aleppo, recently returned from Aleppo. And she says, what was that like? And when confronted with this question, he says, I don't know why it happened then or why it should have been the queen who breached the dam. Perhaps it was because she is the mother of the nation and I had lost my own mother. My bottom lip started to go and all I wanted to do was to burst into tears, but I held myself together as best I could. I hoped she wouldn't ask me another question about Aleppo. I knew if she did, I would completely lose control. She looked at me quizzically and touched my hand. She then had a quiet word with one of her courtiers who pointed to a silver box in front of her. I watched as she opened the box, which was full of biscuits. These are for the dog, she said, breaking one of the biscuits in two and giving me half. We fed the biscuits to the corgis under the table, and for the rest of the lunch she took the lead and chatted about her dogs, how many she had, what their names were, how old they were. All the while we were stroking and petting them, and my anxiety and distress drained away. There, the Queen said, that's so much better than talking, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a great story, and, and it also shows, I think, an, uh, um, that, that feeling, like he said, the fact that he had lost his own mother and needing a, a mother figure, because coming back from that kind of trauma, having PTSD, as you said, and not realizing it, um, and, and always mentioning again and again that he lives alone in a flat. And despite being a very successful doctor, he's always broke because he's always doing these things uh, unpaid. Um, that feeling that somebody to look after him. And it's so funny that the queen is that mother figure. And also um, her understanding that he doesn't, you know, it wasn't the right time to talk. It was time to take his mind off something. It's a beautiful little story that encapsulates a lot of the book. It does. And also his relationship with his current wife Eleanor and how he meets he meets her very late on I think he's in his 50s when he decides when he's faced with he thinks impending doom and, and death that he decides to drop a line to this wonderful woman that he met at a fundraiser and he says I, th I think you I think you were nice um, and she ends up replying to him and they end up going on a couple of dates and he realizes very quickly, you know, this is the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. And she writes the afterward in the book. And I don't know if you actually read this part, but it's it's absolutely beautiful. And she says, society demands heroes, but we don't necessarily want them to be too human. We don't want messiness. To remain pleasing to us, they should exist in a sphere of goodness and virtue we ourselves find impossible to attain. At the first hint of failing, the first chink in the armour, the bubble is burst and the search for perfection begins afresh. Love, like surgery, isn't always tidy and it isn't always easy. In many ways, rushing in and out of war zones is easier than the day-in, day-out normality of home life. You won't always be the hero and saviour. There will be routine, boredom and difficult conversations. I often have to remind myself what an adjustment married life and fatherhood must be for David, someone who has lived so much of his life on the razor's edge and in a fair degree of emotion, emotional isolation. And she speaks so beautifully about him and he speaks so beautifully about her in the book. And the last section where he's coping with all of these issues, this anxiety and this stress, but she's there supporting him in spite of it all and him pushing her away is also a really lovely part of the story as well. And I think it's a nice happy ending for him. And the theme of not having love in his life is, is, is there. And then at the end, that happy ending is beautiful for the reader. But also, I think throughout, there's the theme of him not believing in God. And you find that towards the end, he finds God. And there's a beautiful um, story about him being in Aleppo and feeling he needs to go to church and going on a very dangerous um, um, trek to, to the only church left. Um, and spending time with the priest and then that priest dying a few months later and how that touched him. And he actually ends with a beautiful verse from the Quran. He finishes the book with a verse from the Quran, which is which says that um, he who saves one person, it's as if he saved all of humanity. 
Um, and he, you know, the fact that that's his takeaway as the final line is really beautiful and it shows what his learnings from being in the Middle East for so long and eventually finding God in his own way. And it, it was a really beautiful part of it. I, I, I kind of lost count of the number of times my heart just soared reading this. I mean, it was constantly crushed by all of the horrific things that he was describing. But then there was always David with with his goodness and his kindness. And it wasn't just the work that he did himself in all of these war zones that was amazing. Part of his work that he's found most rewarding, he says, is teaching people on the ground, teaching the doctors and the surgeons that don't get the chance to leave after a few weeks, who have to stay there and deal with these patients all the time. And so passing that knowledge on has been a really important part of his work. This is him talking about the importance of leaving a legacy. But I think that most enjoyable things I've been doing more recently, really, is the training and teaching the doctors. And I've used the knowledge that I've gained over 20 years or so and put it back into training courses and using all the videos and pictures of operations that I've done over those years and actually now training people how to do it. So I leave a legacy. And that's the most fantastic part of what I do now. I love that about leaving a legacy because it's it's so he could just go into these war zones and he could do what he does and he could leave. But it's so important to him that that work continues in his absence, that he he teaches and he does these training courses so that that work can keep going and he can keep saving people even when he's not there. And I think it's a rallying call for doctors who are reading it, because I can imagine that other surgeons are reading and understanding how it works and what it looks like. Many of them will be inspired to go and, and do what he's doing. Uh, and uh, at a time where, you know, 20 years ago, where it was not many people understood or knew how it works. Someone has texted in a wonderful quote. I thought my life was a tragedy. Little did I know it was a comedy. Arthur Fleck, kind of the theme on the bookshelf today. Things that make us laugh and things that make us cry as well. Well, there is. I mean, if we have time later on, there's a couple of really funny, um, crazy stories in the book that, that do make you laugh and cry at the same time, which think, we can touch I think, on. I think the one that we can we have a little bit of time to mention now is the one where he discovers that there is a python hiding in the toilet in one of the places that he's actually been given for some R&R. He's got 24 hours of just rest and relaxation. And in that period of time, he discovers that there has been a python lurking in his toilet. Yeah, it's, it's when he's just done with Darfur and they give him 24 hours to rest before he gets back. Um, and he can hear, it's one of the old toilets that's a wooden kind of shed and he can hear something inside that he's not sure what it is. And eventually he goes to, to, you know, to check with a flashlight and realizes there's a huge python in there. And he says, his funny words is he says, what a way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been a sticky end for him. There, there are these moments of, of light relief, but they are, I feel like they're, they're few and, and far between because, you know, of the nature of of what he has to go through but then there's also those moments in the operating theater where with the surgeons and even with all of these awful things happening around him he's still they're still trying to keep the banter going while they're conducting these difficult operations yeah it reminded me of the tv show mash if you used to watch yes, it you know, absolutely. they're always like up to their elbows in blood and with people but they're, but they're trying to keep it going because they're operating and as he was 18 hours a day Wow. of non-stop operating so he's he be, would barely sleep and then he'd be back in the operating theater and feeling that if he's sleeping someone else is dying um, and he can't take that risk isabel can't be here on the show today and i know she, she's just read this and i'd love to get her thoughts on it so here she is on the line with us hi isabel hello annabelle and hello to uh, jamal and to alex i'm um, sorry i can't be with you but i've really enjoyed listening to your 
um, wonderful insights into David Knott's memoir. It's an incredible book, and I would absolutely recommend it to anyone to read because um, he is at the sort of the edge of humanity uh, in incredibly dangerous places. And it is, you know, a case of life and death of uh, whoever's on his operating table, but also of him and his colleagues who are working in hospitals, which should be safeguarded, but they're not. In war, war zones, wherever he's worked, they're being attacked by shelling and, and bombing and things like that. So it's not just um, the people who are injured who are coming in, many of them civilians. It's also him and the teams that he work, works with. So... I can't tell you how moved I am by someone who has the courage to do what he has done over the last 25 years. It's incredible. And as you've said, he, he is a modest person. He even tries to sort of um, uh, give, give, give an excuse about, you know, the adrenaline that he gets. But he is living on the edge of life and death. Um, and he has to operate in sort of uh, far from ideal conditions in many cases. So, so of course, the adrenaline is going and he has to use his high intelligence and his skills as a surgeon to try and find solutions in sort of, you know, in seconds. Um, I just cannot tell you how moved I have been by this, by this book and feeling about, my goodness, this, I hope, will become a documentary film. Someone has to put his story into, into a film so it can be shared by millions of people, understanding what goes on in war zones. Because I think sometimes we're sanitized. We don't realize, you know, what it's actually like. And his writing is stark, um, and it brings it right home. And it may be uncomfortable in places, but we need to know this. We need to know this. Yeah, Isabel, I was about to say as well, this has to be a movie. It has everything in it. It has a love story, a spiritual journey, fantastic action, and then obviously the, the horrors of war. It reminded me a bit of Beyond Borders, the, the Angelina Jolie and Clive Owen film, where they're continuously going back to war zones and eventually fall in love. And I see, you see that thread of that it could be a fantastic movie. And it's an important movie, I think, to get out there so that more people can understand what can be done and how important that the work that he does and that doctors like him do um, is for people in these war zones. And that was, one, I agree. That was yeah. one of the and frustrations then, that he had as well, wasn't it? Was that he was trying to share these experiences with various media outlets in, in the UK and around the world and he just felt that it, everything was falling on deaf ears. I agree. And, and that they, they just weren't interested. But the thing is that hopefully with his book and if it becomes you know when things go from from a from a memoir that's written into a film we know the impact is global and that that there is then a move to make sure that hospitals should be uh, they are under international law guaranteed that they are safe and we know this is not happening so i think this is this would be a really good achievement he's also set up with with his wife ellie the david knott foundation and as well as um, the work he does when he goes out with Medicines Sans Frontier, one of my favorite charities, he also trains doctors there. But they also have as part of their foundation uh, a scheme whereby doctors from these uh, war zones or areas that, that you know, have a huge amount of uh, civilian injuries are brought 
to UK and they're trained in the latest research. They also have equipment going out there. So he really is leaving a legacy in the best possible way. Um, it's not him as Mr. Hero. It's the complete opposite. He is seeing what he can do to help as many people as possible. And I can imagine, in a way, his frustration that he, you know, when he's in these places, he may be operating, as you said, Jamal, 10 to 20 people and saving their lives. And when he comes back to UK, he's still doing very valuable work, but it's not in the same league. It can't be. Yeah, and Isabel, if you, I think that the, another theme that goes through it that you mentioned is tar- not only just um, um, attacking hospitals, but specifically targeting hospitals. And he said that was so clear in two places. One was um, mm-hmm. Gaza, Gaza and in uh, Aleppo, where, but where the, the hospitals were being targeted and to a very malicious extent. So one example he gave was barrel bombs that obviously wreak huge destruction. But then when they moved mm-hmm. the, the surgical theaters underground, mm-hmm. Um, they they began dropping what they call bunker bombs, which is a bomb that, that falls down, drills into the ground, and then explodes, so that it makes oh sure it kills everyone underground as well. Um, yeah. So it is specific targeting, and civilians pay the price. And and one last thing I'll mention that I thought was fantastic is he he does struggle with the moral dilemma of whether he should save the the fighters, the people who are attacking them. And at one point, he's operating on an ISIS fighter and thinking to himself, should I do it? Um, and But he will he always does. And he says, you never know, that person might be somebody who ends up saving lives instead of taking them. Exactly. And as a doctor, every doctor takes a Hippocratic oath to save lives, to do no harm is, is what. And so you can't, you can't turn... You can't turn your back on that. If someone is there and you can save their life, you can't make moral judgments. But the very fact that he writes about it in the book, he is the most humane human being I ever think I've read um, his story. And it, oh, I can't tell you the impact it's had on me personally reading this book. I would hugely recommend to anyone to get a copy of this book and read it because um, it opens your eyes to so many, so many different aspects of what these amazing um, medical personnel do across across the world as part of Medicine Sans Frontier, which is, has been going for a long time, which doctors volunteer unpaid, uh, you know, they get nothing to go and work in, in, in war zones as and when they're needed. I completely um, echo what Isabel has been saying. I 100% recommend that you go out and read this book. I don't know about you, Isabel, but I had to put it down every now and then because of all of the things that he was talking about and I had to process it and then go back to it and I actually can't believe that this this man is actually real and he's a human being because he just he goes beyond bravery he goes beyond courage um I think I think I can believe he he is real and I think it's because of the way he writes it's such a modest way and he he's writing this because he has to write it he has to tell the story of what's going on out there in the hope that some of the things can be changed but also to encourage all of us to open our eyes to what is going on in conflict areas around the world we should not be blind to it and we should you know if anyone wants to go onto his foundation website you can donate you can donate money you can do things um but just read about the work he's doing that is helping the medics on the ground as well, who are there, as you said earlier. They're there day in, day out. They're not just going there for two weeks or a month. They're there all the time. Um, And, you know, any support they can get 
to be able to do their job better and to do it in safe conditions uh, has to be applauded. Thank you so much, Isabel, for letting us know your thoughts on War Doctor by David Knott. It's been lovely having you in the show, albeit not in person. It's been nice speaking to you over the phone. And you. And enjoy the rest of the show, um, everyone. And, and you are amazing, all of you. Um, it's been brilliant joining you and listening also to what you were saying before. And I'll keep tuned in to the rest of your show. Thank you, Isabel. Take care. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. So we're going to have to wrap up now, but I think all of us can agree that this is definitely a recommendation from all of us. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's one that you should read. I mean, there's lots of insight. And I think you've made some great points, Jamal, about the book, but it just covers humanity. It covers a story. It's a story we all need to know and we all need to hear about. And I'm sure that at some point the rights will be picked up and we'll see a movie version of this. But you've got to read the words. You have to read the words on paper and see the full story. And exactly from his point of view, it's really quite remarkable. And very uh, very readable as well. I mean, it's 360 pages. I downed it in two days straight because I couldn't put it down. It's like reading a thriller. um, But the fact that it's all real is so much more gripping and so much more moving. Absolutely. So War Doctor by David Knott, um, his memoir of working as a surgeon in war zones all over the world um, from Sarajevo under siege in 1993 to rebel-held eastern Aleppo is the book we are recommending on the show. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.